0: Good morning, everyone. My name's Jordan. I'm the adult ministry pastor here at Soul Sanctuary, and I'm just really uh, looking forward to getting into the scriptures and sharing today. It's kind of neat. We're in our second week back in our regular setup. I don't have to do circles today when I'm preaching, so um, I should be a little bit more comfortable. As many of you are aware, uh, Pastor Jerry and Sharon and uh, Jordan Michelski and a whole team of people from our church are away in the Ukraine this week. Uh, they're ministering out there. They're teaching English to students. And uh, keep up with their reports and stuff on social media. You'll see it. They're posting a lot of pictures, a lot of videos. Keep them in your prayers this week as they continue to minister. Uh, it's really neat how God is using them and that. But this morning, we are going to jump back into the book of Matthew. And we're at chapter... 22, and we find ourselves in a section where Jesus is speaking in parables. He's telling stories, Um, not just everyday stories, but rather stories that illustrate and teach us something about the kingdom of God. And so this week, we're looking at a particular story that as Andrew, uh, during his um, prayer time read through, talked about saying it's an interesting one. It's been an interesting study this past week. Uh, There's a lot of ways in which people have interpreted this parable and uh, different meanings that people have derived from it. Not all of those things healthy. And so we're going to look at this this morning. But to start off our life lesson, let's just talk for a moment about the importance of making decisions. And so decisions matter. Our choices matter. Anyone uh, know who Jim treliving is? Anyone? He, he owns multiple franchises. He owns Boston Pizza. That's probably how most people are familiar with him. He owns Mr. Lube. He's also on the popular show on CBC, The Dragon's Den, uh, where business uh, owners uh, sit around and hear pitches from young entrepreneurs and uh, decide whether or not they want to invest into them. Uh, Jim Living wrote this book called Decisions. And um, I, I, I've kind of followed these dragons and read most of the books that they put out. And he talks about how one of the most important things that we do in life is the decisions that we make. But it's not just making the decisions, it's actually following through and living out what it is that we decide to do. How many of us know it's easy to uh, start something, and how many of us know it's more difficult to finish it? Um, And so decisions matter. Uh, Sometimes even the small decisions that we make can have huge consequences or lasting effects on our lives. Um... Jim Truliving jokes in the book that the biggest decision he ever made in his life was one night after working for the RCMP in Alberta. That night, he, he, he always went out and got food before he went home. And he said the biggest decision he ever made in his life was to choose pizza that evening over Chinese food. And uh, he found himself at this little place called Boston Pizza. It was a little uh, restaurant in the town that he lived in. And he just fell in love with the vibe. He fell in love with what was happening there. He thought to himself, you know, a little bit of a dream born in him that night. That maybe I could do something like this. Maybe I could own this. Maybe I could franchise this. And the rest is history now. Um, Even just the most mindless decisions sometimes have, you know, great and lasting consequences and effects for us. But what about the big decisions? Do we pay attention to them more? Or do we ever sometimes even get a little too relaxed on the big decisions that we make? Here's some decisions that I've made in my life. Today, I I decided to start my day off with a cup of hot tea, you know? I have this habit of picking up hot tea when I come to church in the morning, and then by the time I finish it, it is iced tea. It tastes kind of cold, right? I should learn to drink quicker. Um, Another decision I made was to go to college and study theology, and I did that, and I graduated with a degree. Um, a decision I made was to drive a Honda. Now, don't boo me on that, okay, depending on what kind of vehicle. I, I got some fans here, right? Um, a, a Pretty good decision, I think. I have made a decision not to cheer for the Saskatchewan Rough Riders despite living in Saskatchewan for a long time, right? Hopefully, Sean and Murray are in the room, right? Actually, we had Murray in a bomber jersey the other night. They've all had it going, but that's a whole other story. I'll, I'll, I'll get that evidence out there soon. Um, Another big decision I made was I decided to ask Nicole to marry me in 2007. And she, in turn, decided to say yes. Right? (laughs) Glad that worked out. Right? That could have gotten awkward uh, had that not uh, gone the way I expected it to do. But here's the fact, and here's what remains at the end of the day. That we all face decisions every single day, some we don't even think about, maybe we don't even really need to. Um, you don't need to think about some of your routines. They just happen. But others deserve our attention. And some decisions are just pure out life-altering once we make them. And not all, only are they things that affect us daily, but not in a lot of ways, they set the course for how we live and for how we use our time and for how we invest in our time and our talents and our treasures, if I can say it like that. Some decisions are minor and can work with change. Other, other decisions, like asking my wife to marry me, not so much. That's life-altering. And that affects everything about my life. Making decisions are important, no doubt, but recognizing their daily effect on our lives, that can't be diminished. And so with that in mind, let's turn to Jesus and his kingdom this morning, since we are in church. And uh, what about the invitation that God has given to each one of us to follow him? To live with him? To enter the party, if I could say it like that. How does that decision affect me? How does it affect you? today. This is what we're going to look at as we open the scriptures this morning in Matthew chapter 22, and we're going to start at verse 1, and we're going to read a story that is known as the parable of the wedding banquet. And so like any good teacher, Jesus draws from the common experiences of the people he's teaching, and he builds stories, and he builds teachings around these things. And so the original audience who heard this would have been familiar with it. And so Matthew chapter 22, if I could just get it up on the screen, let's begin to read. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. And then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything's ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Let's stop there for a few minutes, okay? (laughs) We're going to carry on. But let's talk about those who were invited first to this party, to this wedding banquet. You see, we're at a part in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 21 and 22 where we're seeing Jesus tell parables that are a direct response to the religious leaders who are questioning his authority. They're asking him, what right do you have to talk for God? What, what, What right do you have to say the things that you're saying? And so Jesus is painting them a picture of what his kingdom is really like. And in this case, he uses the example of a king throwing a wedding party for his son. And now, many of us, I think, this morning would say that we love weddings. We enjoy them. We have a fun time. A wedding is a wonderful event that's shared, you know, with people that you're in close relation with, uh, family members, co-workers, uh, friends, close friends, et cetera, et cetera. And the same is true in this story. The king has certain people that he intends to bring to this wedding. And what an honor this would have been for those who had been invited. What an honor this should have been. For those who had been invited. You see, when it came to the guest list at a wedding, you, you first invited your fellow allies and friends, your fellow dignitaries, if I could say it like that, those who were closest to you. And what's surprising in this story is that all of these people declined the offer, they declined the invitation. They rejected the invitation of the king. And the original audience who were hearing this story for the first time immediately would have chuckled and probably thought to themselves, no way that would ever happen. There's no way that would ever happen. No way people would just be flippant and walk away. You see, in this parable, just to kind of give it away, the first guests were the chosen people of God. Jesus is speaking of the nation of Israel. And he's speaking to the religious teachers and leaders Jesus is speaking of here the first line of guests, and they responded with hostility, and they had other things going on, and one went off to this, and one went off and did that. And Jesus paints this story in royalty to show that this is not just an ordinary wedding dinner, but this is the king, and the king is throwing a feast for his son, a royal wedding. And this would have been crazy in the Middle Eastern culture of that time. Sometimes wedding feasts could even last a week. They liked the party. They knew how to party with their friends and family. And the king sent his servants to call those who were already invited, the people who had already received their invite, but they wouldn't come. And they declined the offer. You know, it is one thing to say no to a wedding that you're invited to. But in this case, this is the king who's inviting you. This is the king's own son. This is a massive wedding feast. The, the, the first twist in the parable should invoke thoughts of, well, something's not right here. You don't reject an invitation from the king. If he invites you, you accept it and you show up. But this king in this story is different than other kings. You see, this king is unusual. The original audience would have found what happened next very unusual because he goes on to describe the feast that he prepared to those people he invited. And he tells them what they're missing out on. You know, the fattened calf and oxen, it's cooked dinner is ready. It's unusual behavior for a king who has been rejected to go back a second time and start pleading with the guests and start, you know, almost trying to be like, look what I have for you. Look what's prepared. Please come to the wedding banquet. And so a second time, he goes back, he sends his messengers to invite. Everything is ready. The food is cooked, etc. An early king would never do such a thing. To stoop down and ask again. Almost like the king is begging them. You know, I got this all ready for you. No actual king in that time would do that. And the audience would have been left with, interesting. You know, they'd have been thinking about this, thinking something's not right here. And Jesus Ascribing these good qualities to this king, in a sense, he's saying, you know, God is like this. Earthly kings are not, but this is how God is. The story behind the story is that Jesus is teaching them about a different kind of kingdom. Different than the kingdoms of the world. Different than the rulers that they're used to. Jesus is teaching them something new. And the backdrop to this parable is Israel's history. With the kingdom of God. And God not only invites them twice. But over and over and over again. In scripture he's imploring the people. His people to come into this covenant. And to keep covenant. Because they they always seem to be unfaithful. They always seem to go off on their own way. And Jesus is saying. There are dire consequences. For not accepting God's invitation. And that's where the tough part of this parable comes in. That's where verse 7 came in. There are dire consequences for not accepting God's invitation. But the wedding must and will go on. And in God, we always see these two things, don't we? Grace and invitation. Grace and invitation. You see, God in his kindness is always reaching out to the people of Israel. In this story, the disrespected king invites them twice and he goes out of his way to do it. The problem isn't with the person who was offering the invitation here. But the problem is in the hearts of those who have been invited. And we're going to see that more as we look further into this story. Have you ever received an invitation before? Imagine your dream invitation. Um, it, it, that maybe it would be an athlete. Maybe it would be a star. Maybe it would be a writer. Maybe it would be someone that you look up to. But how many of us, you know, if if, if a certain invitation to an event came into your mailbox, you would just do anything. You would cancel out your your, your plans. You would make sure that you prioritized it. You would do anything to accept that invite, right? If if we were given an invitation by someone who we looked up to or by a very close friend or by someone that we loved, um, it's not something that we would treat casually. It's not something we'd become hostile towards. But you'd be excited. You'd be delighted that this invitation was coming your way. And that would be the proper response to an invitation like that. But in this story early on, we see that these people were casual at best and defiant at worst with the king's invitation. They showed little respect and they felt that there were more pressing pressing things happening. One went off to his fields, one went off to his business when they were offered such an amazing invitation to this feast. And looking at it in terms of God's invitation, this really was the invitation, really is the invitation of a lifetime. And so the question comes back to us, and we have to look inwardly when we read a parable. It's not just about, oh man, those guys really missed the mark. It's not just about, oh man, they really responded poorly. I can't believe they would do something like that. But how would we respond to the king's invitation? If the king issues an invitation, how do we respond today? Do we also ever get preoccupied with our stuff and with our own priorities? Do we also sometimes treat the invite with little thought or attention? Do we have a tendency sometimes to even prioritize ourselves even over the king? These are the kinds of questions that this story confronts us with. And as much as Jesus was speaking to a group of people that day, we would be remiss to forget that he's also speaking to us this morning and inviting us to the party. Are we willing to accept and honor the invitation that he sets before us today? Let's keep reading in the story. Let's take it up in verse 8, Matthew chapter 22. And then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. And so the servants went out into the streets, gathered all the people they could find the bad as well as the good and the wedding hall was filled with guests and so the king at this point recognizes that the people who were first invited they're not interested they're doing their own thing and he sends his servants out go out and invite anyone you could find both good and bad the scripture says you see the king invites peasants even bad peasants to the dining hall to celebrate his son's wedding The audience at this point would be going, no way on earth this is happening. Under no circumstances would an actual king invite peasants, even bad peasants, into his dining hall for such an occasion. For a wedding feast. This is royalty in this story. They would have no place here. And so this was an unexpected good thing that Jesus is attributing to this king in this story. And he surprises his audience. And it's like he's saying, pay attention to this, because this is another way in which God is like. This is another attribute of God. And it's that God invites everyone. He invites all to the party, both good and bad. And this shouldn't surprise us going through the book of Matthew, because this has been a common teaching throughout the Gospels, all four Gospels leading up to this point. In Matthew chapter 5, in verse 3, uh, we read Jesus um, says these words, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What he's essentially saying is best, blessed are the not good enoughs, blessed are the spiritual zeros, blessed are those of you who thought that you were on the outs of the party, blessed are you for yours is the kingdom of heaven. In the book of Mark in chapter 2, we see that Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners and when the teachers of the law who were, who were with the Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And the truth is just this, friends, this morning is that God's plan isn't just for a select few elite people. God's plan isn't just for quote-unquote good people, but he has come that none should perish, and that all should find new life in him. Amen? That is his plan. That is his desire. And so we see the king instructing his messengers to go, go out into the streets, go and find anyone you can find, and invite them to this party. They don't want to miss out. And we shouldn't skip over that word go. Since we do see it at the end of the book of Matthew in the Great Commission. It's one of the last things Jesus tells his disciples. Is to go out into all the world. You see the gospel is always a movement. It's not just a moment. It's not just a one time decision. But it's a movement. It's something that we're always going to. And we're always taken out there. You see in some ways we're in danger. I think of, of replacing the word go with come. But Jesus never said the world should come to us, but he said that as, as, as believers, as his followers, that we should go to them. And he instructs his messengers to go to both good and bad and all who will accept this invite, reiterating this truth that the gospel isn't only for some good people, but the gospel's for all people. That's good news. And people hearing this story would have been shocked by this, and they would have thought, my goodness, how could the king do this? What type of king would do this? Well, this is a different type of king we're looking at. We're learning about God as we, as, we, as we look at the story. And the good news, though it wasn't good news to those who were originally invited, was that God was sending out new messengers to all the wrong parts of town to tell everyone and anyone to come to this party. And they came in droves. And we don't have to look far in Matthew's Gospels to see who they were. They were the tax collectors. They were the prostitutes. They were the riffraff. They were the spiritual nobodies. They were the blind and the lame. The people who thought they were likely, and they were likely taught that they had been forgotten by God. These are the people who entered the party. These are the people who celebrated at the feast. And they were thrilled that God's message was for them. And friends, that is truly to them good news. Let's read the rest of the story in verse 11 to 14. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. And he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. And then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot, throw him outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. And this is the part of the parable. (laughs) where commentators like to fight over. This is the part of the parable where the interpretation um, can get a little dicey, and there's many different trains of thought in which this goes. You see, in order to understand this last part, we must point out a few things first. Firstly, that Jewish culture put a real premium on festivities. Religious festivities, weddings, and things like that, they put a real premium not only on festivities, but on dressing properly. For these festivities. The way that you would show that you held this festivity or family putting on the festivity in high regard is by wearing your best, by wearing your robe, by wearing your wedding clothes if you could say it like that. And so all Jewish people likely owned a garment or a robe that they set aside for special occasions like this. In some cases they would have been given this robe when invited to an occasion such as a wedding. It was often provided for the guests to wear because dress was valued. It's your Sunday's Sunday best, as the church used to call it. Anyone remember that? Right? And unfortunately, this story has actually been used to promote wearing a suit to church on Sunday, right? Wear your suit or gnashing of teeth for you, right? It's not what the story is saying, okay? Don't quote me on that. But it's your Sunday's best, as the church used to call it. You know, Sunday's best is interesting because I came to faith as a young adult and probably at the right time, Okay? Because this is what I'm wearing. And really, this is the best you're going to get out of me on a Sunday, okay? So, you know, it probably worked out for me pretty good. I remember in Bible college, we had to wear full suits to church every Sunday. I went to Bible college in the early 2000s. And we had to wear ties, suits, and they were even enforced with fines if we didn't wear them, okay? And every Wednesday, for classes all day, we had to wear a full suit to class. And the, the previous generations called it Dress Up for Jesus Day, Right? I think some of us just kind of threw up in our mouth a little bit when I said that, right? But they they put value on this, and they were strict on this, and if you didn't wear it, you'd get a $5 fine. I'm not lying to you. I'm I'm dead serious. This This is how the system worked. And I remember a friend of mine who didn't want to buy a suit, so he just added up how many weeks he wouldn't wear a suit, how many $5 that was, and he realized that to pay the fines was way cheaper, and so he didn't bother even going for it, right? Parable of the shrewd manager, anyone, right? But Sunday's best was this thing that, you know, you you wear your best robe, you you put on your best stuff for school, you dress up for Jesus, ha ha ha, right? The idea was to wear your best on a special occasion. I remember the pastor of the church, I'm just going off my notes here, when we had this Sunday's best thing, eventually wrote to the college and said, can your students who come to my church start dressing their age, right? Uh, They're standing out here, they're looking, you know, not as they should, they're not looking like the other people their age. And they eventually got rid of that a year after I went to school, thank Jesus, right? Thank you, Lord. But the idea here in this story, back coming back, was, was to wear your best on a special occasion. You see, this person is making a statement, showing up in rags and not a wedding robe. It's making a statement. And what this person is essentially saying is that this is what I think about your stupid wedding. This is what I think about your son. By showing up there not properly dressed, a statement in this culture was, in fact, being made. And let's make no mistake. Jesus' intent in this story was not simply to point out someone who didn't have the right dress attire, okay? (laughs) But it signified something deeper in this story. And it's that his attire was not fit for, for this wedding because his heart was not fit for this wedding. His attire was not fit for this wedding, but it was really his heart that wasn't fit for this wedding. You see, you're supposed to go to the wedding to celebrate and because you enjoy it, but his heart wasn't right. And so he's showing disdain for the king. He's showing disdain for this whole wedding. And so his attire in this picture is actually reflecting the state of his heart and the state of his life. And his heart seems to be not fit, fit not for the wedding, but for the place where people go. Where there's raging and weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place of judgment, a place of regret, a place of deep regret because of what, you've, what you see you missed out on, as Jesus says. And so the takeaway in this part of the story really is that you end up in the environment where your heart fits. You end up in the environment where your heart fits. He's not compatible with this wedding in his heart. For whatever reason, he's decided that wedding clothes don't matter. That he's fine just the way he is. It's almost like he thinks, you know, I was invited. Aren't you grateful I actually came? So many, so many others just said no to you. Now what can you give me? And how can you serve my interests? And he shows disdain by the way he shows up. You see, the lack of wedding clothes, friends, is a heart problem. And how we follow through on accepting the invitation to the party. And so here's a question. In light of this, how does God's grace impact you on a daily basis? How many have sense His invitation in their lives? That invitation is an act of grace. That act, invitation is an act of love. That invitation is unmerited. We do not deserve that invitation. We could do nothing to earn it. We can do nothing to accomplish it. And yet, he invites us in an act of grace. So how does this grace impact you on a daily basis? You see, being invited to God's party or God's kingdom is simply an act of grace. It's pure grace. And so how does that impact us today? If you've made the decision to follow him and come to the party and be a part of his kingdom, how does that decision that you made still affect your daily life today? And we have to caution here. And we have to ask some tough questions based on what we read in this story. And we have to ask ourselves is God's grace simply just imputed righteousness or something that just covers all the bad things that we do? Or does God's grace empower us to try to please Him, to be near Him, to live a holy life, to follow Him, to love Him? You see, Jesus warns not just about accepting the invite, but about actively doing God's will. All throughout chapter 21 and 22, we're seeing that bearing fruit is not an option, as Pastor Jerry talked about in the Parable of the Tenants. Producing fruit in keeping with righteousness. It was expected. If, if, if you were in the vine, you would produce fruit because God's the one who tended it. And being at the party with the right clothes, clothes on, clothed in him, when Jesus calls us to the party, we're changed. You know, a few weeks back when we started this section, Pastor Jordan Michelski said this. He said, Jesus is for our transformation and against our sin. And that's so true. And that's difficult for us to hear sometimes. You see, I'll tell you something that's true. The love of God will always reach people where they are at. And that's true, but he refuses to let people stay there. The love of God may reach you as you were, but God's love refuses to let you stay as you were. Because he has something far better planned for you. And in reality, no one actually believes that God wants us to stay exactly as we were. I don't believe any of us at the end of the day actually believe that. That God wants people to stay as they are. I think sometimes that might sound admirable. Because often we want to justify some type of behavior in our life. Or some type of sin or some disobedience that we know is wrong. But at the end of the day, the truth is that God's love is so great that he even loves serial killers. And he loves people who are ruthless in their interactions with others and work and in business. And he loves people who, 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 who at times might misuse their power and might hurt people. Yes, he loves them. But the point of God's love for them is not so that they would continue to live in such a way. But he wants them to change. And he has something far greater for them. A new way of living that puts the things of God and the people that God loves first. And he loves them, but not the behavior that they exhibit. And that's a good thing for us today. It's a good thing that God doesn't want us to stay just as we are. He has something far better planned for each one of us. The love of God may in fact reach people as they are, but the truth is is that his love refuses to let us stay that way. Because he's got something more in mind for us. And maybe that's something that, you know, isn't just some cliche or some truth that we've heard time and time and time again. But maybe we need a reminder this morning in this room of how much God loves us. Maybe we need daily reminders of how much God loves us. Last week during uh, Team Huddle, before the gathering, I talked about this. But there was a movie uh, years ago. I'm dating myself. 51st Dates. Anyone ever seen it? With uh, Drew Barrymore and Adam Sandler? And the point of the movie is that Drew Barrymore's character in the movie ends up in an accident, and she has some sort of brain injury where she can't remember things from day to day. She's lost her memory. She can remember things while she's awake, but when she goes to bed, she forgets the next morning. And so Adam Sandler's pursuing her in a romantic relationship, and every single day she wakes up and can't remember who he is. Talk about frustrating, right? And so he develops this idea. You see the videotape there on the screen that says, Good morning, Lucy. He develops this idea Where he decides to play a video for her every morning, reminding her of what they did the day before, reminding her of his love for her, reminding her of their relationship and how they've connected, and how they 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 care for one another, and it's this daily reminder of love. And I sometimes wonder: Are we quick as people sometimes to forget how much God loves us each and every day? Do we maybe need this reminder? Do we maybe need this tape played for us? How easy is it for us to forget that we are loved by God? I encourage you in that this morning. I encourage each one of us sitting here that we are loved by God and his reminder is daily for us today. You know, as people who have received his love, as people who have received his grace, here's where we are now. We are empowered to live with him in a whole new way. And it's not by following rules, and it's not by dragging yourself around to obey him. With a story like this, you have to caution against legalism. It'd be very easy for me to come up here and be like, you've got to start doing this, you've got to start doing that. You know, but, but the idea is, is that we're empowered to live, live with him, and it's not just by dragging ourselves around to obey him. But Jesus, by his grace, has saved us, and he's invited us into relationship with him. And that's a key word for us, relationship. That keeps us from legalism, but that also keeps us from the opposite, from licentiousness. Yes, that's how you say that word. Because both aren't helpful for us. Both aren't good for us, right? You can get into one side where your relationship with God is just some checklist, and it's frustrating, and it makes you angry, and it's upsetting. Or you can end up over here where it's just like, oh, grace will cover it. Ah, grace will cover it. Grace has it, Right? And a relationship helps us sort out in our lives what is priority, especially when you love the one that you're in a relationship with. Those big decisions I talked about earlier, they really help affect your daily life. And they really help you set priorities. You see, our faith walk is about things we can—our faith walk isn't about things, about— things we can or cannot do. We need to get to the point where we see following Jesus less about being inconvenienced or restrained from doing what we actually want to do and recognize the privilege of the invitation that he's given us. And it's his grace that will make the difference in us seeing that. It's his grace that brings about obedience. Clothed in Christ, grace motivates us. Let me show you this from scripture very quickly. In Titus 2.11, we see these words written, we could have that on the screen. Uh, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Now catch this. Grace of God, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, God's grace doesn't... um, throw a whole bunch of rules on our back and stuff, but it actually frees us up to say no to things that God doesn't want us having any part of. It's relationship. We prioritize it. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10 says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This isn't from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Grace, friends, empowers us to live for him. Grace empowers us. One more, 1 Corinthians 15, 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Grace empowers us grace empowers us. You see, God's grace really changes everything for us. It takes us from religion to relationship, from duty to delight, from living by the rules to experiencing true freedom in this walk. And there's two ways that we can treat his grace. The first way, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, we could, we could cheapen it. It could be cheap grace to us. And that means that that's the person who thinks, you know, ah, well, you know, God will forgive me. I can do this. Oh, I could disregard that. God will forgive me. I can indulge in my sinful nature. God has it covered. And we just treat grace so cheaply and not the way it was intended to be distributed to us and used. Or, as Dietrich also says, grace in our lives can be costly because we recognize that it costs Jesus' life. And it empowers us into right living. Not works righteousness, but because we have his righteousness We are blessed and we recognize this gift that we naturally want to please God. Grace empowers us in this way. And we produce fruit in keeping with righteousness. Not by our own power, but by the power of God, his care over us. As were the branches in the tree. Are you with me? You see, when I came to faith, I had no understanding of grace. I went to Bible school in my first year of school. And I told you this before. And I would condemn myself. And for me, it was works, 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 works. I had to at least show God that I was serious. I was hoping God wasn't upset with me. I was hoping I did enough good things that at least, you know, God can overlook some of the bad that I did. And it was a terrible way to live. It's like a mouse on a wheel. You think you're getting somewhere. You think you're moving, but you're really going nowhere. You're staying in that same frustrated spot. And I remember a conversation I had with another student in my first year who grew up in the church his whole life. And he said, for me, Jordan, it's actually the opposite, I need to recognize how costly grace is, and not cheapen it, and not have this attitude that, you know, grace is going to cover it, and being flippant and willfully disobedient. In his commentary on this portion of the book of Matthew, Frederick Dale Bruner says it like this. He says, true faith in God's imputed righteousness moves believers to want to be righteous personally. Not as a basis for standing before God, only Christ can give that but as an evidence of wanting to please the Father who is gracious enough to invite. The gift of the Holy Spirit given with faith moves believers to want to be holy. Friends, grace empowers us. The law doesn't, but grace does. And if we don't place a value on being holy, or if we don't even try, or if we think it's not even necessary uh, to try and live a Christ-like life, If we see the Christian gospel as simply making, you know, a safe permission to live as one pleases, you know, do what we want, care about what we want. If we treat it lax, if we treat it without the care it deserves, then this parable this morning warns us against such thinking. It warns us against such thinking. We come around the bend with this story. I read a book in my, uh, I read a book, great. Um, I read a book in my last year of college by, sorry, my second year of college by Philip Yancey called What's So Amazing About Grace. And the book had a tremendous impact upon my life and on how I began to live. Um, It truly changed my life and how I came to see and interact with God. And if you haven't read it, and this is something you struggle with and you can relate with me in my work side, check it out. This will be a, a real freeing thing for you. But towards the end of the book, Um, He references, with grace, there is always a potential for loopholes. And he has a chapter called Loopholes, which talks about abusing it and cheapening it and making it not what it was meant to be. And Philip Yancey talks about, in the book, about how one hot summer, he had to take a German language class. And he was living in a climate that, much like us, really only gets like, what, six weeks of summer? No, I'm kidding. But you know what I mean, right? A few months of summer. And, 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 and he had to take a class, and he had to learn this language in order to get his graduate degree. And he wrote of summer, delightful summer evenings when friends were out enjoying the weather, and going out golfing, and doing all sorts of things that people, you know, hopefully can do in the summer. He was stuck inside with a German tutor, and he studied five nights a week. Three hours a night he spent memorizing vocabulary and the word endings of a new language. Stuff he knew he would never use again. And he writes that I endured such torture for one purpose only, and that was to pass the test and get my degree. (laughs) He had a goal in mind. It was something he had to do, and so he got it done. But then he offers a thought about grace and his work that he was doing that summer. And he asked us to, to paint a picture and to think about it a little bit differently and to think about it like this. What if you were to go and take a difficult course in university or college, and before you even began the classes, the school register called you into the office and made a promise to you. And the school register said to you, you know, we want you to study hard. We want you to learn the material. We want you to take the tests and the assignments. But having said that, we promise that you will receive a passing grade, huh? Right? In fact, your degree has already been filled out. Your name is on it. It is here. It is ready for you. It's done. And so put yourself in a situation where you were called into an office and you were given that kind of a promise in academics. I think the students in the room would be like, yeah, I'll have some of that. Amen, right? And he turns this towards our Christian faith. And Yancey asks the readers, do you think, knowing this in advance, do you think it might have an impact on how you would approach your studies that summer? Picture doing summer classes in the nice Winnipeg heat, you know, that's literally here for a good time, not a long time, right? Do you think knowing your degree is guaranteed and taken care of that it may cause you to slack off a little bit? That it may cause you to go out and enjoy the sun? That it may impact how much you study and how much you work? Anyone here going to put their hand up and say that you might take it easy? I'm good, okay? All right? And the rest of us, you know, there's forgiveness if we're lying a little bit, right? But but we're going to take it easy, right? We're guaranteed a passing mark. This is happening. But then he turns it towards our Christian faith and he talks of the Apostle Paul's teaching. And the Apostle Paul faced this theological dilemma in the book of Romans because grace is sometimes can be risky because it has the ability to be abused. And in Romans 6 1, the Apostle Paul asks this question. He says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And Paul answers this with absolutely not, by no means. Because grace has been shown to keep us from the harmful effects of sin and not to push us towards it. And so back to Yancey and learning a new language. Why would he want to learn German, he reckoned? There are noble reasons for sure. Language can broaden your mind. It can help you communicate with more people. But Yancey admits that he was simply doing it that summer for selfish reasons. He needed to finish a degree, and only the threat of consequences over him, should he not learn a new language, caused him to reorder his summer priorities that summer. And it caused him to work hard, and it caused him to be dedicated. And there was no delight in this. It was simply duty. But then he started to wonder this. He started to ask himself the question, what would actually inspire him to learn a new language? And he thought of one powerful incentive and that is, if his wife, the woman he fell in love with, spoke only German, he says, that, he would, that would have inspired him to learn this new language. In fact, he likely would have learned this new language in record time if that was the case. And why? Well, because he would have a desperate desire to communicate with her. He would have put the work in as he practiced how he would say I love you in his own, in, in her language to her. He would have stayed up late. He would have put the work in because the relationship itself would have been his reward and his love for his wife would have taken this from simply enduring and working on something but to finding the beauty in it. Do you see where we're going with this? This is how we are to approach God, friends. We don't do things for God simply because we have to but, but because we've experienced his love, we've experienced his grace and we want to. We don't avoid sin simply because it's forbidden or we're held back from it, but because we treasure God and we desire to please him. This is what it means to live in Christ. This is what it means to please God. This takes us from a formula or simply a contract way of living that keeps us from living in religion in the sense that we must do things to keep our side of the deal, but it frees us to live in relationship with God because his love has changed us and We love him, and because he loves us, we desire to carry out his commands. In John 14, 15, we read the words that if you love me, you will keep my commands. If you love me, you will keep my commands. You see, a person thinking through the lens of law would read this and think that we could prove our love to God by obeying him. But that's work righteousness. Relationship is so much deeper Relationship is about following, falling in love with Christ, that we naturally want to obey his commands. That we want to obey, that we prioritize being at the party in the proper attire. Are you with me? Not that we have to follow him, but that we get to. Not that we must do these things, but what an honor and privilege it is to be a part of it. Not that Jesus restrains us from doing what we actually want to do, but we delight in him, we love him so much as grace empowers us, that we prioritize him. And what a delight it is for us to please him with our lives. Philip Yancey, in the last word in that chapter, said this, if I could have it up on the screen. Indeed, God wants something more intimate than the closest relationship on earth. The lifetime bond between a man and a woman. What God wants is not a good performance, but my heart. I do good works for my wife, not in order to earn credit, but to express my love for her. Likewise, God wants me to serve in the new way of the spirit, not out of compulsion, but out of desire. Discipleship, discipleship, says Clifford Williams, simply means a life which springs from grace. And so the invitation goes out, and we're invited to a party, friends. And there are people sometimes who say they're going to be at the party, but they don't make it there because of distractions and because they don't prioritize it or because they didn't put enough value on it. It's one thing to say that we're in, but will we show up and accept the invitation? the wedding party and even better yet will we have the right heart condition clothed in christ his righteousness not ours seeking to please him because of the grace he's shown us our decisions friends that we make are so important especially our decision on whether or not we're going to accept the invitation to god up on the screen you'll see a number and if you i'm going to ask you a series of questions today And uh, if some of this resonated with you, I just invite you to text "soul" to that number, and one of us will get a hold of you. A pastor will call you, and we would love to just chat with you more about this. But here's some questions I'm going to ask this morning. In what ways have we perhaps accepted the invitation of God, or rejected the invitation of God? Maybe for you this morning, you've seen a good God who invites all to the party, all people to the party, regardless of appearances, and, and, and background and things that they've done, perhaps you need, need to say yes to his invitation this morning. Maybe that's where you find yourself today. In what ways have we maybe said yes to God, but we find ourselves going about our own business and to our own interests more than we would like to admit? How have you made sure to stay connected to the vine so that grace can empower you in your daily living? has it become more about duty for you and less about the grace you've experienced and the delight you have because of that when you first met Christ? My prayer this week for each one of us is that we'd have a good time, holiday weekend. But my prayer is that we would take time to ponder these things, that we would go back to the scriptures, that we would do a self-examination Is that you would take it to God in prayer, in relationship, and meet with him. And ask him where your heart is at. And ask him to touch your heart. And ask him to renew your love and passion if that's where you find yourself today. And remember that life is simply about being invited to his party. And living in him, with him, and for him. Amen? And so God invites us. Are we coming? Are we there this morning? May grace empower you each and every day this week as you seek to serve him. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you, Lord, just for your word this morning. I thank you for how it has the ability, Lord God, just to judge the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. And I pray, Lord, that you would just reveal to us afresh your grace today. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to go back to that first time where we met you and just remember that feeling, Lord, and that love, Lord God, expressed to us. And I pray you'd help us to live our lives out of that. Lord, keep us from making this about duty, Lord God, but help us to delight in you. Keep us, Lord God, from making it something we have to do. Help us to want to do the things that you've called us to. And so I pray for each person in this room today, wherever we're at, Lord, that you would just show us your grace, that you would pour your love upon us, God, and that you would strengthen us this week as we leave and as we seek to serve you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Can I have everyone stand this morning? Still a long weekend. uh, Still lots of fun to have. I better hurry up. I know you guys want to get to the forks, right? So uh, I better get going here. I'm kidding. But uh, I want to give you a blessing before I go this morning. And in ancient times, the one who blessed did so by extending hands. Those who wanted to receive a blessing did likewise. And here it is for you today. May the beauty of God be reflected in your eyes. May the love of God be reflected in your hands. May the wisdom of God be reflected in your words. And the knowledge and grace of God flow from your heart that all might see, and in seeing, believe. Go today, not alone, but in relationship with the God who has invited you into his party. Amen.